This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, when Dr. Rachel Levine became Joe Biden's Assistant Secretary for Health, she also became the first openly transgender official to serve in any Senate-confirmed position. Meanwhile, Pete Buttigieg is the first openly gay cabinet member to be confirmed. Have we finally entered a more friendly era for LGBTQ politicians nationally? My colleague Tony Bravo is here to examine that question. Later on the show, we're also going to have a visit from Rachel Swan, Chronicle reporter that's been covering the surge in violence and hate crimes against Asian Americans. We'll talk about the pressure on California leaders to respond, but perhaps not only with just new get tough punishments for offenders. First, Tony Bravo. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. So, Tony, it's a really fascinating story, a great look at the issue. What inspired you to look at it? Was it was it the appointment of people like Rachel Levine? Yeah, uh, when I started doing this story, actually, Levine was a little further off in the horizon. It was Buttigieg that made me want to take a look at what the numbers and what the politicians themselves had to say about being LGBTQ in the current political environment. Uh, we've certainly just exited an interesting four years of policy at the top um, and how the community was approached. I think that there is a lot of hope that with these two appointments that we might be entering an era where maybe some of these first are over with and we can enter a moment where sexuality is more incidental in elections. So these are obviously huge moments and, and a long time coming, but do the numbers bear out the larger trend? There are some really interesting numbers that uh, have been uh, out there about this topic. The Victory Institute's 2020 census about LGBTQ elected officials actually puts the number of uh, LGBTQ officials in the United States at 843 which is a growth of 88% since the first time they did this census in 2017. What I think is the most remarkable about this is that in addition to this 40% increase that they've seen in uh, the election of trans women, um, that we now also have a couple of really significant firsts for the trans community, including not only Dr. Rachel Levine's uh, confirmation, but also uh, Sarah McBride being the first trans person elected to any state Senate in the United States. That election was in uh, Joe Biden's home state of Delaware this past uh, November. You write about sort of a big moment there in, in that she didn't center her identity in the race and, and perhaps didn't need to. That was fascinating to see. I think that for a lot of LGBTQ candidates and politicians that I've spoken to, there was a moment where that needed to be part of the discussion, either because it would potentially appeal to the community or to just get the issue out of the way. Yes, I'm gay. Yes, I'm trans. Yes, I'm bisexual. But I also am running for office and here's my platform. With McBride, I think it was interesting that the really the message of the campaign was I'm a local. 
I represent you. I want to talk about the issues. I, I don't want to say that the um, historic first of her being trans in this position was sort of brushed by. But again, we're seeing that feeling that um, some of these uh, identity markers might be coming more incidental, and we might really be looking at the candidates for their policy positions and uh, their qualities as leaders more than their gender identity or their sexuality. Now, that said, we're at a time where there is a push for some laws based on fear around the country in different states, including for bans in sports of, of transgender athletes. There are still moves for things like bathroom bans. This is happening at the same time. What, how does that sort of affect the progress and how do, how do politicians talk about it? You know, I think it's all part of the sort of pendulum swing of our culture. Uh, for every reaction, there tends to be a counter reaction. I think we see historic first happening, progress in representation. Of course, you're going to have pushback and you're going to have pushback in areas that are probably more comfortable slash scary for everyday voters than somebody's position on a carbon tax or whether or not they think uh, a committee needs to have three additional appointments. Bathrooms and team sports, I feel like they're aiming straight for the middle, the people who maybe don't have strong anti-trans feelings, but who have a degree of unfamiliarity or nervousness around the subject. I think it's not only uh, polarizing, but uh, people in the trans community have told me that this is this is very dangerous legislation. Arya Saeed, the uh, executive director of the Transgender District here in San Francisco, for one, was appalled by some of these recent developments and pointed out to me that for every Dr. Levine or uh, Senator McBride, we still have issues like this coming up that are hitting the trans community where they live. Tony, one of the amazing things about your work here that is so fascinating to read is the journey that a lot of these politicians are taking over the years. And they're, they seem to be sort of reflecting on where they're at relative to maybe their forebears. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Uh, you know, uh, I think it was Tom Amiano who pointed out, we've come a long way since Harvey Milk in the late 70s here in San Francisco, who uh, was the first openly gay person to be elected to public office. Uh, and uh, his big thing was coming out, just the political necessity and saying, we're here, we're queer, we're your neighbors, we exist next door to you. Uh, since then, we've certainly seen not only a more nuanced conversation, but again, with this uh, focus going back to the issues more than the person's sexuality or their gender identity, especially in metropolitan voting areas like San Francisco, I'm actually seeing that there are some gay candidates that are not gay enough, uh, for lack of a better description, or who are not politically aligned enough with parts of the gay community uh, while we're undergoing some of these first. Uh, Buttigieg, I think, is a really interesting example. There were a lot of people that immediately liked him for policy reasons. There were a lot of people that liked him because he would because he was the first gay candidate for the Democratic nomination for presidency that uh, really was very viable. But there were also people that thought that he was too much of an establishment candidate. People were very happy to point out the level of inexperience or a track record on certain social issues that they didn't think was liberal enough or informed enough. I, I think especially in San Francisco, though, 
being gay is not enough to get you elected. You've got to have the goods to back it up. And I think that part of equality is that we are free to be critical of these people. Raphael Mandelman had some interesting comments about about what he still deals with. But, you know, I think he said that uh, he receives some anti-gay hatred, especially online, um, but perhaps not as much as in the past. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. I mean, I, I talking to Tom Amiano and uh, Mark Leno, who have been in the game a bit longer, Mandelman's comment, I thought, was fabulous. He said that he'd only had an amuse-bouche of prejudice compared to some of his predecessors who were getting like the full entree of hatred. Uh, that second part of it is me, by the way. I just love the idea of an amuse-bouche of prejudice. Um, put as only, I think, a gay person could with just that right touch of ironic wit. But given that we are not there yet in terms of equality, I think uh, we would agree on that. Do do leaders uh, among these politicians um, talk about challenges? Do they do they feel like there are things that are important uh, to them? Are there is it important? Do they feel like they need to represent anything in their ranks? One of the things that I thought was really significant was the idea that it cannot just be uh, gay white men representing the LGBT community in politics. We certainly need more people of color. Uh, That was a common sentiment that was mentioned. Uh, More women, more people with uh, trans or non-binary gender identities. Uh, I think that in many sections of the culture, gay white men have gotten to be sort of the flag bearers for the LGBTQ community. And uh, speaking as a gay white man, I don't think that that is accurate representation of the very diverse population of LGBTQ people that I meet and that I interview in my role here at The Chronicle. And I also just think that it's good politics. Uh, You know, you want a more inclusive body. Uh, One of the things that was also discussed was this idea that there needs to be more intersectionality in uh, how a lot of these minority caucuses work together, uh, whether we're talking about in D.C. or in Sacramento. Ultimately, Tony, you get to a place in the piece where Scott Wiener talks about feeling like it was inconceivable in the past that he would see a gay president or an LGBTQ president. And he doesn't feel that way anymore? No, he doesn't. He thinks it's conceivable in his lifetime, as several of the other politicians I spoke to did, that they could see a LGBTQ president. Um, I think that Buttigieg certainly proved that a campaign with a uh, gay uh, candidate can be taken seriously. It's not the the, the quote-unquote comical or joking idea that it might have been in previous years. I mean, I feel like we probably saw Saturday Night Live sketches about this issue in earlier decades, um, as we probably did with other minority groups, quite frankly. I think between the election of Barack Obama and the the election of Kamala Harris as uh, vice president, we're seeing so many of these ceilings shatter that I think the rainbow ceiling is the next one to go, hopefully in not too long. All right, Tony, let's leave it there. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. That was Tony Bravo to read his piece. Go to sfchronicle.com, publishes on Friday. We'll be back on Fifth and Mission right after this. We'll be right back after a short break. 
You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa, joined now by Chronicle reporter Rachel Swan. She covers law enforcement, policing, and justice issues. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Damian. How are you? I'm good. So, Rachel, you've been covering some of the anti-Asian attacks that have been going on, causing alarm in the Bay Area, obviously, around the country. But one thing that's come up is the prosecution of hate crimes, which adds uh, adds to people's sentences, right? It can, it can make the crime more serious. Um, very difficult to, to prove a hate crime, but also some politics, right, in, in terms of, of what we want to do now. Do we want to toughen the hate crime laws? Yeah, it's a really tough question. I mean, Damien, as you know, as a state, we've been moving away from tougher sentencing. And, um, you know, we're in this post-George Floyd moment, you know, so it's, we're, I guess the way I described it is this is a real quandary for lawmakers um, because, you know, they are facing, from what I observed, two competing pressures Anytime there's a crime wave that draws a lot of public attention, traditionally the response has been tougher laws, like we saw with three strikes, you know. But, um, you know, now we're in this moment where we're just not really doing that anymore. And there's more of an emphasis on prevention and training and data collection. All right. So there there has been a response, right? Can you give us a little bit of a, of a snapshot of the kinds of proposals that are out there? Yeah. So in the state capital, we, uh, my boss and I, Raheem, counted um, roughly 13 bills that dealt with this hate crime issue. Some of them had actually been brought up in previous legislative sessions and left for dead and are now, you know, legislators saw a window of opportunity to bring them back. Um, The majority of them are not for tougher sentencing. There were about three that were um, in some way either Give, enabling prosecutors to change a misdemeanor charge to a felony or, you know, one by um, Assemblyman Jim Cooper, Cooper made it harder to get early release from prison for um, felony hate crimes. But, you know, a lot of the others we're seeing, like David Chu is uh, has co-authored a couple of bills, including one for a statewide hotline for people to call in and report um, hate incidents. And um, our presumptive attorney general, Rob Bonta, is uh, sponsoring a bill to uh, make it easier for victims to get compensated, even if they don't cooperate from law enforcement, which which is a really you know unusual position for someone seeking the top law enforcement seat to take. So we're just seeing this almost a schism. So what are the two two sides saying? I mean, there's probably more than two sides, but but there are people that want the laws to be tougher. They want people to go to jail for more amount of time and, and they are not impressed by other methods of sending a message. 
Yes. So um, we do have um, a couple people, a Republican and a couple Democrats, who um, are not impressed with methods that do not include a longer sentence. You know, more of the sort of traditional tough on crime approach to tr- criminal justice that we've seen in past decades. Um, I think they called it they called it fluff. Yeah, uh, one, Assembly one Assembly person, Member but... Jim Cooper. Um, it was interesting talking to him, Damien, because. Um, so he's someone who's considered a moderate, former law enforcement. Um, he represents Elk Grove, so it's kind of a more um, moderate to conservative area of California. Um, so he is advocating um, a bill, or I'm sorry, he has authored a bill that would make it harder to get early release from prison for a felony hate crime conviction. And... Um, you know, by like the old standards, it's not like a super tough on crime bill, but you know, it is something that could result in longer prison stays. And he's, he told me that he's just feeling very isolated. He doesn't think his bill will get a hearing. Um, he was surprised by the lack of support from fellow Democrats. And, um, he just thought, okay, all these other proposals that are sort of just more about, you know, putting out information and gathering data and, you know, giving people a number to call. Like, it's just symbolism. It's not really tackling the problem. Okay. But on the other hand, and you've written about this a lot, we are in a time of reform. San Francisco has a, a district attorney who believes that that the practices of the past have not made the city safer and not made the state safer. So what are some of the alternatives here to to simply using punishment? What I'm seeing a lot is this idea that if we give people more avenues to report hate crimes, if we gather more data, if we get a more complete picture of the extent of the problem, then that's the first extent to combating it. Official law enforcement channels don't really seem to be doing a great job of gathering hate crime data. I mean, it's really been uh, nonprofits that have picked up the slack. But I mean, we're, we are seeing some proposals to do more training for law enforcement so that they would be more um, understanding of hate crimes and able to deal with victims um, easier. But I mean, the response we're seeing so far, I guess, is is just in a way illustrating how how much of a how difficult this issue is you know i mean we're trying to like figure out how to deal with a crime that really incites people but at the same time you know you're talking about like what someone feels in their head like it's just a very difficult thing to prosecute and punishment and guard against but ultimately the theory is that we need to push more resources away from from law enforcement, from perhaps imprisoning people and spend it way more on the front end, yeah. right? Yes, well put. E- like education and, you know, I even heard a professor say like, hey, maybe we could accomplish more by having more ethnic studies programs, you know, and that would accomplish more than changing people's sentences. And keeping someone. And, yeah. Yeah, preventing early release. Yeah, exactly. All right, Rachel, let's leave it there. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Damien. Appreciate it. Thanks to my guests today, Chronicle reporters Tony Bravo and Rachel Swan, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.